Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. My name is Tracy Ariel and I am unapologetically Canadian. Here we are today with Keith Newman, and we he is from the Environics Institute for Survey Research, and we're going to be talking about Canada's World Survey 2018, which was released by the Canadian International Council last Monday, April 16, 2018. Now, this study follows up Canada's World Survey 2008, and so I'm very interested to hear, uh, Keith, uh, what exactly uh, is happening with this study? Why two different studies, and what did you find that you uh, really appreciated about it? Well, Tracy, thank you for having me on your podcast. Let me clarify up front that this this project was a, a joint initiative of four organizations. It was our institute, it was the Canadian International Council, but also the Simon Fraser University Public Square and the Bill Graham Centre for Contemporary. So uh, I guess we would describe it as a joint venture, and it's the way in which we approach many of our studies. And uh, so this, this was a survey that we just released yesterday, uh, Monday, April 16th. Um, uh, with our partners, uh, looking at how Canadians as individuals relate to the broader world and how they uh, see their country. And this is, uh, 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 apart from what the government's doing and foreign policy and all of those official things that happen out of Ottawa, but more at a personal level. This, uh, this survey was an update of one a similar survey that we did in 2008. Um, which uh, was the first time these kinds of questions have been asked of Canadians. And uh, 10 years later, it was time for an update. Oh, awesome. So what's your role in this? What, what do you actually do for Enveronics? I am the executive director of the Enveronics Institute, which is a, a very small nonprofit organization. In 2006 by Michael Adams, uh, who uh, is a public intellectual, has written many books, uh, founded uh, a research company also with the Enveronics uh, and is often uh, in the media talking about social trends and, uh, and social values. So we, uh, the Institute does uh, public opinion and social research in Canada, about Canada. Uh, that's research that's not being done by anybody else. Uh, we ask questions that aren't normally asked. We often interview people not normally surveyed. Uh, in a way, really, to help Canada understand itself better. And so what would you say that the uh, a brief overview of the study results, what did we find out um, in overview? We asked a lot of questions, um, and uh, those questions were ones we in 2008, so we were really looking, looking forward to see if it changed or not. Um, I think there are a number of things that really stand out. Um, you know, the world... 2008 and 2018 has changed quite dramatically. Uh, many events, many happened over that period of time. Uh, 2008 seems like a very uh, quiet, peaceful, idyllic uh, point in history when we look compared to the challenges the country, the country and the world are facing today. And what was uh, one of the remarkable from the survey uh, uh, was that uh, 
Canadians' views on many of the questions and topics we covered have changed remarkably little over this tenure. Uh, uh, some some attitudes we might have thought in, in one way or another really haven't that much, um, and that's quite striking. Yeah, well, actually, I think we should go into some of the details. Like you were telling me before that the United States, you actually have data on that going back to uh, 1982. Uh, and there's been 20 different surveys just about that. So can you tell me, has the overall opinion of the United States, of Canadians uh, towards the United States, has that changed? Is that uh, similar to what's, what you found before? What did you discover? Well, yeah. And another important part of the survey is it's not that none of the Canadians have changed. I think some things have changed in response to happening in the world. So, uh, and I think the opinions of the United States is one of those examples. And we've been asked about their overall, overall opinion of the USA every year, every several years. Uh, and we've seen a, a sort of, you know, change over time. I think overall uh, opinions of the United States tend to be much more positive than negative. Uh, but we have found that it is sensitive to U.S. politics and who is in the White House. Um, and we found through the 80s and 90s that uh, 70% of uh, Canadians were positive about the United States. And that really changed significantly uh, uh, when uh, George W. Bush the House and the U.S. pursued very aggressive foreign policy in the Middle East and elsewhere. And we saw uh, that opinion, uh, favorable opinion number, dip to about uh, 50%. When Obama came in, uh, it, the opinions climbed back up to where they were before. It was around 70%. Um, and, uh, and then more recently, uh, shortly after Donald Trump uh, took over the White House, we found uh, that opinions have plummeted to an all-time low and less than 50%, about 40, 45% of Canadians in the United States. So. That, that's, uh, uh, that's where there's been clear change in response to events. And, uh, um, and I think there's been other survey research uh, in Canada and elsewhere showing that uh, uh, apart from the political division in the United States, uh, outside the United States, in almost all countries, uh, uh, opinion of, of uh, the president in the United States has gone down quite soon. That's interesting. Actually, maybe at this point we should tell people how the study was collected because this was a telephone survey, right? Uh, roughly 1,500 people? 1,500 in one <laughs> if you're counting. So, uh, yeah, so surveys are done in different ways and uh, uh, a lot of surveys are now done online. Uh, this survey was done by telephone. Telephone surveys are still an effective way to do surveys, but uh, provided that you uh, survey people not only on landlines, but cell and uh, so cell phones, how do you get the numbers of all the people then if it's cell phones? It's, uh, it's not as difficult as you might think. Uh, so it's not as if there's a, a, a free of uh, cell phone numbers and, and, and names, but, uh, but, but companies, uh, uh, companies that provide service and generate numbers do have distinct numbers for cell phones as opposed to landlines. And so uh, it be possible to, to generate sort of broad lists of phone numbers some of them may not be working. Some of them may be old or, or whatever, uh, but it's, it's feasible to do. Uh, and I think most telephone surveys done these days uh, have uh, what they call dual sample design, where they have uh, a big list of a big list of landlines, a big list of cell phones, and they make sure that they have some of both. So uh, it was a telephone done at the end of last year, a uh, representative sample uh, with uh, across the country and age and gender and that sort of thing. 
Um, and one of the reasons we did this survey by telephone is that the survey in 2008 was also done by telephone. And when you want to compare different surveys, you really need to use the same survey methodology uh, because uh, it's clear that uh, when you ask a question, uh, depending on what type of survey you do, you might get a slightly different answer, whether it's an online survey, an in-person survey, or a telephone. So matching the, the survey method is an important way to ensure that we can look at changes. So, and how uh, reliable would you say this survey is? What's the, what's the stats? Well, that's a, that's a question. There, there are many, uh, what we describe as sources of error in uh, how surveys are done uh, in many different categories or types of error, and most of them have no way to measure it. Um, so uh, I think that uh, the only couple, the only points I guess perhaps I would make is one, uh, we ask the same questions using the same methodology. Uh, so there's consistency, the comparability would be there. Uh, the margin of sampling error, which is sometimes coded for probability samples, is about 1% 19 out of 20 samples. Um, that, that sort of simply is some sort of random error that, that might uh, apply to a given sample of 1,500. But I should point out that that's one particular measure that is um, uh, quoted quite frequently because it's the only one that you can put a clear number on. And so it is useful, but by no means complete. Uh, and I think there is perhaps uh, an overemphasis on margin of sampling error in the reporting of survey research. That's interesting. Um, so in this particular case, then, we have a, um, a cross-section of ages, a cross-section of regions. We have a, uh, now, we actually, one of the things that you noticed is that there was a diversity in terms of younger Canadians versus older Canadians. Can you describe a little bit about um, what happened there? Well, yes. And, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I'm just referring to the results here. Um, so <coughs> when we're doing this kind of survey, it's, of course, important to make sure that we have good representation from uh, uh, the population, not only by age and region, but uh, gender and by income and education. So, you know, we need to have a really good cross-section. And then when we look at the results, we look at the overall results, but we also look at the results by a lot of these different groups. There are similarities and differences. And for the most part, the broad conclusions from the study uh, more or less apply to all of the age groups and all of the other subgroups that we've been looking at. So it's not as if we have uh, distinct realities of, of view uh, across generations of, of Canadians. Um, but that being said, there are some differences across that are worth pointing out. And I think most interesting, perhaps, is that uh, the youngest group that we surveyed, uh, in the ages of 18 to 24, <coughs> uh, do stand in the, in, in the sense that that age cohort in 2018 uh, uh, shows a somewhat uh, uh, a set of attitudes than, than 18 to 24-year-olds did 10 years ago obviously a different group of people, excuse me. And, and I, over the 10 years, young Canadians have become more engaged uh, in paying attention um, and more likely to be traveling um, and feeling more connected to many of the things that are happening. Um, and in some cases, they have caught up to older age groups in terms of their level of engagement. In other 
case they've actually surpassed uh, older Canadians. So there's an interesting shift that's happening sort of the youngest set of adults that we have in the country, uh, partly their engagement, but partly in terms of their attitudes, uh, in terms of how they see Canada playing its role in the world, uh, playing, playing its role in the world. Uh, they're more young, more positive about Canada's influence in the world, what it is and what it can do. And also, particularly in one of the other major findings that we, we saw, so when we ask Canadians uh, what their country's contribution is to the world, than older Canadians to say it's about being a multicultural, diverse, welcoming other people. Oh, I think you must have turned your mic at some point. We lost the last uh, we lost the last section there. You hear me now? Yeah, now I hear you. Okay. So you were saying you you you, you we just lost you as you were saying that um, younger Canadians uh, have a more uh, um, approach on the world, uh, uh, the similar approach on foreign affairs and travel as their, their uh, other age groups. But um, the last section of that, the last sentence of that got lost. Let me try again. Okay. The youngest uh, cohort of Canadians, eight, those aged 18 to 24, uh, they've either caught up or surpassed older uh, cohorts of Canadians in terms of their engagement with the world and how Canada's, their country's role uh, uh, the impact that it has or the, uh, to the world. Um, and uh, more than older Canadians, it's the youngest group that is most likely to say that Canada's contribution to the world is being a multicultural, diverse, welcoming place to people from other countries. Ah, okay. Okay. So then the, uh, basically they're traveling more. Is there some sort of a diversity in time in terms of who they are? Because I notice in another question you talk about um, where uh, multicultural Canadians and t Canadians from from uh, communities being um, more open to diversity. Yes. Well, eighteen to twenty-four year olds are a bit more ethnically diverse, uh, or immigrants, but not dramatically. It's, I think it's more about uh, uh, that life stage uh, than it is about where they're. Uh, but it, you do touch on another point, is that the other group that stands out uh, in our research uh, are those who were born in another country. It's now about 21 or 22 percent of the population, so it's not insignificant. Um, and we would expect uh, uh, people born in other countries perhaps to be more engaged in what's happening in Canada because they come from outside of Canada and they probably have strong connections to a country or a region. So that makes sense. But uh, but what we found is that over the 10-year period between the two surveys, that it's a born uh, group that has become more connected uh, uh, to uh, uh, the world outside. So the gap between foreign-born and native-born is wide over this period of time. Sorry, you said that the foreign-born Canadians ha have become more connected to the world? They've, they've become more engaged, like youth, uh, the level of uh, travel engagement and paying attention for foreign-born is higher in 2018 than it was in 2008. Oh, okay. So, um, and that may be a question of technology or something else, and there's no way of knowing that because the question didn't ask that, right? No, no, it doesn't really ask that. So obviously there may be new technologies and other sorts of things that, that help, but some of that 10 years ago, uh, and certainly travel 
uh, was an option 10 years ago, and sending remittances overseas is one of the other things that we measured. And uh, foreign-born Canadians also are have their attitudes have changed a bit more. I think that they are now more positive than they were 10 years ago about Canada's influence in the world. Um, they're actually more optimistic about the general direction of the world than native foreign, and that's a bit of a uh, that's a bit of a change. And they're also a bit more likely traveling abroad than they were 10 years ago. So there are a number of uh, dimensions of this where we've seen a shift, not not a dramatic shift, but uh, but noticeable enough to conclude something's changed. Well, that brings up the uh, an interesting part of your study when you divide people up into the optimists versus the pessimists. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that was uh, a question that you asked them basically how they looked on the world's uh, contribution, but also, so can you describe a little bit about how they broke down into optimists versus pessimists in the entire study? Sure. Well, one of the questions that we asked, uh, a very general question was, and I'll read the question for you, would you say that you're basically or basically pessimistic about the direction the world is heading over the next 10 years? Pretty general question, but we're trying to get a, a sentiment of, of sort of where people's heads are at when they look at everything happening in the world. And uh, I asked the question 10 years ago, 2008, and 2008, uh, Canadians were evenly divided. 46% said they're basically optimistic, 46% basically pessimistic, and the rest were somewhere in between their answers often happens. So that's that's what we found back in 2008. And I think today, 2008, as I said, is a pretty peaceful, stable time. It was well before the financial uh, global meltdown. Uh, you know, we didn't have the same kind of conflicts happening in the world. Uh, we didn't have the same kind of authoritarian regimes. There are all sorts of things that weren't happening there. So today in 2018, uh, uh, how would Canadians answer that question? And we thought it was a good time to ask. So uh, in 2018, we asked the question, and we got almost the same result. 44% were basically optimistic, 48% basically pessimistic. Just a very slight change. And that's actually quite surprising, because I think that uh, people today feel that the world is in a much more perilous situation today than it was 10 years ago. And yet, when you ask a Canadian this question, we're not getting something much different. So I think that's, uh, you know, it's, it's perhaps a, a lesson to us or, or some insight about um, how people are really feeling and whether all the terrible things that we see in the new social media is actually permeating uh, uh, people's sense of where things are going. Yeah. And that question now, was that done before the questions about the positive contributions and the um, major world uh uh, issues, or was that after? Uh, it was. It was near the front of the survey, uh, so it was. Uh, it was asked before some of the other questions, but that's uh, that's by design. You didn't want the discussion about terrorism and some of the other things that were brought up by the world major concerns figure. Is that it? Well, it could have been. Sure, you never know, and uh, and uh, so it's better to have. It's it's a very generic question, and we don't. Yeah, we don't want to be throwing a lot of issues at people than that. <clears throat> it's also the way we asked it in 2008. So you want to be fairly consistent. Right, right. Can we talk about um, the major world concerns that were brought up at this? Now, were they were they actually listed by survey respondents or was the survey question actually listing those concerns? That's a very good question. Actually, we asked it both ways, which is really uh, uh, the best way to do it in these kinds of surveys. So first we asked uh, uh, 
people on our survey, uh, what do you think is the most important issue or problem facing the world today? And we, as we describe an unprompted question, we did not give options to pick from. Uh, and, uh, and then we got basically their top of mind uh, response, what was most salient. And then after that, then we listed 12 issues and asked them the level of concern they had about it. So it's, it's a very useful way to get both the top and also their view about specific issues that you want everybody answering. So what were the top concerns when they were unprompted? The top two concerns were uh, sort of the environment, global warming, pollution, uh, 21, and uh, war, conflict, lack of peace, also at 21%. Wow. So those were the two, the two most likely to be mentioned. And then starvation, hunger, 10%, the economy and recession, 7%, terrorism, 7%, and so forth. And then a number of others all mentioned by small proportion. What's interesting is that in 2000, war were also the top two. Uh, but they were more more likely to be mentioned than they were now. So I think what's happened is still there, there is a larger set of issues that people are identifying uh, by small percentages in each case. Right. So how many how many answers would you did you put in that category then? Because and environment and war are the top two. Starvation and hunger and economy and terrorism are very close. If it's seven percent, ten percent, accordingly. Yeah, but then then there then you get several at four percent and then three percent and two percent. So all the other ones are mentioned by very small proportions. Uh, I will point out that perhaps somewhat surprising maybe to some people is that uh, mention of Donald Trump in U.S. politics as a most important world issue was mentioned by only four percent. Oh, wow! Despite the uh, the result uh, the previous result on the overall opinion of the United States dropping. Yes, yes. So it's not. I mean, people have their opinion of the United States, an opinion of Donald Trump. But when you ask this broad question, that's not the that's not the focus that most people have. Now, when people talk about the war or conflict, they may be thinking about uh, you know potential U.S. North Korea or U.S. Russia and that sort of thing. So, yeah, or Syria this week. <laughs> There's some maybe U.S. politics behind it, but but specific mention of uh, of Trump or U.S. politics or or whatever, uh, very few people actually focused on that as their top most important world issue. Right now, then you listed. Uh, you said you had twelve world concerns that you listed. Um, which ones were the most concerning of that list? Well, uh, global warming, the environment was also at the top of that list. Uh, followed in this case famine in the developing world, oh. uh, then, ter- then terrorism, human rights abuse, growing gap between the rich and the poor, uh, spread of weapons, uh, and religious and ethnic hatred. Uh, global warming, uh, environmental uh, problems, 55% said they're very concerned, and hunger and famine, 53%, uh, uh, terrorism, 52%. Uh, environment and hunger a little bit from 2008, not by much. Terrorism is up, so actual concern about terrorism is up a bit more than it was 10 years ago. And what about the gap between the rich and poor and things like that? Because in 2008, I would thought that that would be higher, perhaps. Uh, well, it's interesting. In, in uh, the gap between rich and the poor, 49% say they're very concerned. In 2008, it was 47%, so unchanged, basically unchanged. Oh. Yes. Wow. Okay. Threat of nuclear weapons, only 49% up from 40, so not a lot. Um, I think the most interesting change from uh, uh, 2008 is uh, spread of infections such as HIV and AIDS. So in 2008, 44%, now it's down to 20%. Oh, wow. Okay. Is that because of the SARS uh, problem at that time? or? 
Oh, SARS was actually 2003, but uh, uh, more recent. I think it's a combination of things. I think that in 2008, uh, SARS uh, was gone, but still uh, in memory. Uh, HIV and AIDS was more of an issue than it is now. So I think that uh, there were numerous outbreaks or issues uh, 10 years ago that were in the public consciousness. And in 2017-2018, those issues have kind of disappeared. Um, I, I think that uh, uh, there may be a sense out there that HIV/AIDS is no longer an epidemic, uh, and that it's treatable, and you know, and so that's off the radar. And we haven't had other kinds of outbreak diseases. So I think in this case, uh, because there hasn't been much happening, uh, people's sense of strong concern has diminished. So the numbers I'm quoting you are only the people who say very concerned. They also may be somewhat concerned, and. Uh, uh, most of the people who are not very concerned. So it's not that people are dismissing these, uh, but what we're focusing on in our results are the people that are sort of... Sorry, you're focusing on who? Sorry, the proportion who say they are very concerned about the issue. Right. Okay. What about the people who say that they're not as concerned? Was there anything uh, to mention on that part? Uh, not really. I mean, it's pretty small proportions of Canadians who are not concerned about any of these issues. And that's why you have to use the proper kind of uh, question scale, because if we ask people, are you concerned about this or not, then you'd probably get 80 percent saying, well, yes, I'm every issue. Right. But it's important to qualify that and get a strength of because it's not really a yes or no. I, I don't think so. Really, these are really not yes or no kinds of questions. Uh, so. Uh, uh, so the, the greatest sort of uh, uh, discrimination or thing across uh, uh, opinions about an issue like this is uh, the, the extent or degree of concern. Right. Um, and because, because most people will say, well, yeah, of course I'm concerned about it. Uh, that doesn't help. Because some people are really scared and highly concerned, and other people are kind of maybe just saying it because they feel they should. Right. Now, one other thing that I noticed from the study is that um, – uh, people are more uh, willing now to say, well, are more, more willing to, to be impressed with Canada because we are a multicultural country. Um, can you comment a little bit about that part of the survey? Yes, probably maybe one of the most important findings from the survey. And uh, I think, it, you know, in, in historical ter terms, back over the last uh, couple of generations or so, if uh, most thought about role in the broader world in terms of uh, uh, projecting outward and its impact and what it's doing. I think that uh, 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 most people, and we've seen this on surveys, uh, would think about peacekeeping. Uh, they might think about development assistance or uh, work, you know, sort of being part of global, world wars or the Middle East. Um, you know, when you would ask Canadians what, what our contributions and so forth. I think those are the kinds of uh, 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 things that people, most Canadians, sort of think about. Uh, it, and, it, and it's not as if most people are, are paying close attention to all the specific policies and activities. But that's, that's that that uh, Canadians have had for many generations, starting in, I guess, right after World War II, the Pearson and Nobel Prize, peace, and so forth. Um, but as as, as, as I think most of us, or many of us know, uh, Canada is no longer keeping the way it used to be and, and development assistance and so forth. Uh, still a tendency, I think, for Canadians to think about those same things because 
nothing else has replaced right. it. But what we've seen, started to see over the past few years, really comes out clear in the survey, is that uh, Canadians' uh, a view of their country, their almost their identification of the country as fitting into the broader world, has really shifted quite significantly in the past couple of years. And uh, more than, than any other time, Canadians, when you ask them what's uh, what's our contribution to the world, sort of what 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 kind of role model can we be? It's being a multicultural, diverse, inclusive society that rocks them all over. Uh, that I, I think that over the past couple of, of decades, Canadians have come to kind of recognize this aspect of our country because uh, we're starting, you know, it's becoming evident and. Many, if not all Canadians, are starting to embrace it and saying, well, this is a very positive thing that we're doing. So it's becoming part of our identity. That's interesting because it almost takes us back to Confederation when uh, Canada's most uh, successful, um, the, the idea of federalism was such a new, prominent idea at that time, and we were considered a model on the world. Um, I don't, well, you know, I'd be curious. I don't think there were any surveys done back then. Uh, <laughs> no, there weren't. <laughs> about it. Uh, but I think that it's uh, uh, really, it's, we've seen in our research, this study and other studies, we've seen the, the uh, sort of mission and for many people embracing this notion of this place we take all these people. And I think what's also very important is that the, uh, 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 the country's response to the refugee global uh, over the past couple of years was, I think, a galvanizing event uh, for the country. And as you know, that it became an election issue in 2015 and <clears throat> that we decided 30,000 refugees, and half of it, and many of those were privately sponsored. Um, this this uh, uh, this has really kind of uh, uh, pushed this this view. And we asked on the survey about accepting refugees, and a couple of very interesting results. First, uh, we described in the survey the fact that uh, the country took 30 fees over a two-year period. Almost two-thirds of Canadians uh, uh, told us on the survey that the country should continue to take that many or more refugees. So uh, unlike some other places, other countries where there is a bit of a backlash to taking refugees, that's not happened in Canada. That It's almost the reverse. Wow. That is that is actually really interesting. Yes. It's not that everybody's behind it. Uh, there are people that aren't happy about it, but, but they already are. The other very revealing question is that we asked Canadians on the survey about their involvement in the private sponsorship of Syrian refugee families. There were a lot of private sponsorships and, and so forth. Uh, but uh, on the survey, 7% of Canadians said that they were act, they were involved with a group uh, uh, sponsoring a refugee family, so a church or a synagogue or a group of friends. That's almost 2 million Canadians. Um, and another 25% of Canadians say they know someone who was involved. Wow. So that's... a a third of Canadians who in some way had some connection either themselves or to somebody they knew involved in this. And that's quite a significant statement because, I mean, those numbers may not be exact. There may be some inflation. There may be people who really weren't like to have been and so forth. But the very fact that so many people would say that suggests that this, this has touched a nerve in a positive way. And people see this as a positive thing. Wow! Yeah, that's uh, that is quite impressive uh, in terms of uh, stating what uh, responses to refugees. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't imagine that people would be so welcoming uh, on such a big level. 
Yes, and I mean, there are a lot of notes that we hear about uh, uh, a positive response to. I mean, we know that there are more people that want to sponsor than there are refugees to give them, <laughs> families to sponsor. Uh, so we know anecdotally that a positive outpouring, but this gives us more of a broader picture. And I think just to, to not to put too much on the point, but the only country in the world that has private sponsorship for refugees, it's the only one. Um, Canada is? Really? Yes. In every other country, refugees are by governments. Uh, uh, no other country. I had no idea that uh, that was the truth. <laughs> it started with the Vietnamese uh, 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 refugees in the late 70s. Um, it was also private sponsorship and, uh, you know, was successful. So that paved the way for this. And there probably isn't another country in, in, the, uh, in the world that, that refugees, uh, in almost every other country in the world, uh, refugees, um, are, if not, if not uh, uh, controversial or political or, or you know, there's, there's resistance, there are issues, uh, there are problems. Uh, obviously, in many countries, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, the numbers of refugees are overwhelming the countries and systems. And in Canada, we're very fortunate that we can control the flow. So it's not necessarily because Canadian, Canadians are better or more enlightened people. Uh, uh, you know, I don't think we can necessarily say that we're, we're simply better. Uh, it's the circumstance. Right. But, uh, but there are other countries like Australia and the United States and so forth that can control this to some extent. And uh, 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 refugee issues are, are more, uh, uh, are somewhat more uh, yeah. countries. So there is something unique about Canada uh, and it, you know, its history, its uh, culture, its society, its institutions have allowed this to continue to work for the most part successfully, not entirely. Um, that's not showing any signs of fraying quite yet. Wow, that's uh, that's fascinating. Actually, that brings uh, to the um, other questions uh, from after multicultural that I happen to notice the, the uh, importance of international trade and uh, and the fact you know the fact that you actually have more data than just these two studies to talk about in that area. Right. Well, Can you talk a little bit about what um, what you asked when it came to international trade and why uh, that was a wh what's changed over time? Right. So, in, in looking at uh, how Canada is in the world, uh, I mean, you know, trade is a pretty uh, critical aspect of the Canadian economy. <coughs> so, it, it matters to this country. Uh, uh, the population isn't large enough to have big domestic markets to consume all the things that we produce. So, it's an important aspect of, of our economy and our way of life and standard of living, but the question is, to what extent are Canadians uh, of international trade, trade deals, and so forth, because if the population is not supportive, that creates uh, political pressures on governments. Um, and, you know, if we go back to uh, 80s and 90s, uh, you know, there was a fact in 1988 uh, fought over the free trade deal, where the country was quite divided. Uh, about uh, uh, about uh, free trade with the U.S. and so forth. So uh, these things matter. So uh, we asked a question, uh, two questions, and one question was what the impact of NAFTA on the Canadian economy. Uh, you know, people uh, uh, trade reports, but they have a sense of what's happening. And we started asking about asking this question in 1995 on some other surveys that we do. Uh, and uh, in 1995, we did about eight or nine surveys up to the present. And basically what we're seeing is a, a notable change in opinion 
Back in 1995, Canadians were more likely to say NAFTA hurt the Canadian economy than helped it, uh, 44% to 34%, and then the rest weren't quite sure. So uh, somewhat uh, conflicted back in the mid-90s. Uh, NAFTA was fairly new. People weren't sure what was happening. It was coming out of a recession. Uh, in 2018, 63% say NAFTA has helped the Canadian economy versus only 18% who say it's hurt it. So by more than three to one, Possible. So, um, I think the message here is that all of the internal debates about about trade overseas uh, haven't completely gone away, but they've largely settled down from perspective. And there's there's no longer uh, uh, sort of major uh, splits uh, within society at this point at a broad level about should we be doing trade deals and should we be you know, selling abroad and and so forth. So I think that's an important evolution. And then the other question we asked was importance that people put on international trade way of maintaining Canadian job life. Uh, is it important or not? And we've seen a similar progression from 2018. And in 2018, our current survey, 73% of Canadians say it's very important that international trade is very important to quality of life versus only 22% who say it's uh, uh, somewhat important and only 4% of Canadians say it's not important at all. Wow, that's a big difference from what we're seeing in the world with Brexit and some of the other um, uh, discussions, I mean, even the NAFTA discussions now. Exactly. I think that's what's significant here is that it, in the U.S. and European countries, uh, it's not that there's not some appreciation of trade, but it's much more qualified uh, uh, and conflicted, and maybe some trade's good and other trade's bad. And, and yeah. Uh, it is uh, uh, happening very different, differently elsewhere. So I think it's it's another area where Canada uh, uh, and Canadians, uh, uh, there's something if not exceptional and distinctive about uh, where we are today. Yeah, no, wow. Um, was there anything uh, about this survey that I didn't ask you about that you want to point out, particular questions that we didn't talk about? Uh, yes, just that Canadians uh, are actually uh, uh, one of the ways in which they engage in sending money, either to uh, organizations, international or Canadian organizations that do work overseas uh, in various capacities about foreign ports having given some money to these kinds of organizations, uh, nonprofits primarily, and, and so forth. And, and about one in uh, have actually sent money. One in, sorry, what was that? One in what? One in five. One in five, okay. One in five Canadians have actually sent money abroad to family and friends. So it's normally, this is often called remittances. Uh, more often uh, uh, foreign-born than native-born. But, uh, uh, you know, we know that this is happening. Uh, uh, people send money back to their family or their community or so forth. Uh, but we asked, you know, we wanted to ask how many and how much. And so one in five Canadians uh, in years have sent money abroad. And the average amount of money is about $2,500. Wow, that's extraordinary. Yeah, so if you add all these numbers up over a two-year period, it all amounts to 21 uh, of Canadian money coming. Sorry, say that, say that again, you cut out. $21 billion. $21 billion over two years. That Canadians, as individuals or households, have to organizations or to family or friends uh, overseas. Um, and if you look at the, the federal government's official development assistance budget over two years, it's about half that. So that it, is 
mind-blowing. Yeah. So it's not, you know, it doesn't have the profile. It's not something that we can all visibly see. But when you look at the numbers, you realize that one of the impacts that Canada has on the world is through individual engagement. So Canadians are having... Uh, one of the ways that they are making a difference in the world is by individual donations overseas, either to families or to nonprofit organizations. And it's double what the Canadian government gives in the exact same two years. That is extraordinary. What a great way to end our discussion about uh, what the uh, World Survey talks about uh, when it comes to Canadian identity. Thank you so much, Keith. Uh, the only question I have left is, um, do you consider yourself a Canadian? And uh, if so, what does that mean to you? I'm, unapolog- I'm unapologetically Canadian. Are you? And uh, you yes. told me that you come from the U.S. Can you tell me a little bit about what mean what Canadian what being Canadian means to you? Well, I, I moved here uh, uh, in '82. I married a Canadian who I met in graduate school in the U.S. And uh, like most Canadians, sorry, like almost all Americans, I knew nothing about Canada, absolutely nothing. Um, I might have been able to tell you about Toronto, Montreal. No, I, you know, I, I. Canada was completely uh, a blank slate for me, um, but I married a Canadian, and uh, she wanted to come back, and I thought that sounded good, so I just said, yeah, I'll give it a try, um, and I really never looked back, um, and uh, I think that, um, uh, you know, maybe I have a Canadian sensibility, uh, but I've uh, been here happily ever since, uh, flirted a couple times with maybe moving back for professional reasons, but uh, never have and have since given up my U.S. citizenship and uh, so I feel very Canadian and uh, I, it's the rare individual that uh, that ever can, that never that, that figures out that I'm not from here. <laughs> <laughs> I, consider, I consider that a compliment or, or a good thing so I, I fit in very well. How do you define Canada, being Canadian? How do you define that kind of identity? Um, well, it's a it's a difficult thing. Um, it, you know, I, I think part of the uh, the genius of Canada is it doesn't have uh, an overly set identity. I think that that's actually uh, a, a strength. Um, it makes it difficult to tell a story, but it's actually I think one of the things that has held Canada in good stead because we don't have such a defining character or expectation that people have to become something. Uh, Adrian Clarkson had a very good term for it. She called it benign neglect. <laughs> I don't know. Are you familiar with some of her writing? Yes, yes. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, I... She, she's a bit much sometimes, but she has some very good ideas. Um, but I th- she made a very good point, actually, and she said, you know, when people come to this country, uh, at a certain level, they're kind of left on their own to figure certain things out. Um, and there's not a lot of cultural pressure to become, you know, something different in a certain way. And it gives people space to kind of settle in and sort of figure out, how they're going to live here, and other people give them space. So, um, you know, coming from the United States, I didn't have pressures. I mean, if I were coming from the Middle East or something, it would be very different. <laughs> um, you know, I think it feels like, uh, it, to me, it's it's living in a, um, a place that is uh, more understated and more civilized and uh, just operating at a lower, slower speed compared to the U.S., um, and in, in, you know, that is, I think, becoming increasingly 
valuable as as a, a cultural trait uh, in a world that's moving way too fast and uh, you know it gets to too many extremes in, in different ways in different places. Uh, so Canada's, in a way, a better place to live than to visit. Thank you for listening to Unapologetically Canadian. This episode was brought to you by Notable Nonfiction. Notable Nonfiction teaches people to grow through their own ingenuity. Find out more at notablenonfiction.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.